welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein. And after 32 minutes of technical issues, I think we're finally able to start a podcast. It's amazing how difficult it is sometimes. If you're not, the technology is pretty simple, but every once in a while it just doesn't work. And we gotta, we have to mess around and restart fifteen times and test things, and then suddenly, hey, there it works. Let's get, let's start recording. Yeah, podcast is the real deal, you guys. Okay, this is not just you don't just show up and throw up. You, you got to be prepared to to put in the work too. You know, we're not rock stars like Darren Woods or anything like that. <laughs> A legit rock star. That's that's what I like. So uh, we, yeah. I feel like we know you pretty well since we've already recorded a bunch of this that didn't actually record. But I want to get into Mr. Darren Woods from north of the border. Um, grew up in the British Columbia and lives in Alberta now. But I want to go through your past, kind of get a sense of who you are. How'd you get into oil and gas, energy tech, and all the fun things you've done in your career? You want the origin story. As you get started, there's a, and he made this point earlier, and I want to make sure he drills into this. When you said British Columbia, the first time we tried to record, he quickly said Vancouver Island. Right. So is there a a subtle territorial difference? You do you actually differentiate like that normally, or is you're probably opening up a can of worms? <laughs> oh, here we go. Yeah, no, not really. I mean, so Vancouver Island is that sort of uh, you know long shaped island that uh, just sort of dips down below the 49th parallel and, and is right across the, uh, the the strait from Port Angeles, Washington. Um, so I, I grew up in Victoria, British Columbia, which is actually the capital of BC. And, uh, it's, it's the little city of about 500,000 people, a big little city of 500,000 people. That's, that's right there on the, uh, on, on the Southern coast, the Southern tip of Vancouver Island. So I, I grew up there and, um, and to be honest, I'm actually not even that well-traveled to this day. You know, I, uh, I had very little exposure to even other parts of Canada, let alone, you know, North America or globally, um, but, you know, today, kind of kind of like you alluded to, right, I, I, I live in Alberta and uh, I've spent a lot of time uh, down in, in Texas and, and Colorado as a you know consequence of my work in, in the oil and gas and broader energy space. But, you know, you know, in terms of my upbringing, yeah, you know, pretty humble roots, um, you know, big business, let alone big energy business was not in my family anywhere um, yeah. from a family of, you know, civil servants and sort of local local government people. Um, but you know, I was ambitious and, and, uh, the, the way that I channeled that ambition when I was young was through music. Like, you know, all I wanted to do was, was be a rock star. That's all I thought about. All I, Me too. About. I still think about that actually <laughs> go for it, man. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. So when, when we tried recording before I, I mentioned that movie almost famous, cause it's, it's actually like, a. It, 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 you know, it's a great movie, but it's also a, a great example of how a lot of, um, uh, aware a lot of musical careers stall out i think particularly in the, in the rock music industry so mm-hmm. um you know I, I was always a big rock guy uh, i learned to play the guitar when i was like nine years old and um i was big into guns and roses and slash you know um uh, you know mostly sort of you know 80s 80s era uh, rock and and um also i was in high school and you know the early 2000s when rock had somewhat of a comeback and you know started with pop punk like you know blink 182 and some 41 which is a canadian band and um and you know that just sort of opened up this this universe of of sort of um 
you know, rock industry 2.0. And I, I got into that industry, you know, I, I, when I finished high school, you know, I'd, I'd been playing in garage bands since I was a kid. Um, and then, you know, come grade 12, uh, some of those garage bands were getting kind of serious. You know, we were composing our own stuff and, and, you know, people were telling us, Hey, like, you know, you're really good. Are you, are you going to be a professional musician? Wow. Of course I was like, of course I'm going to be a professional musician. So <laughs> why I, wouldn't I be? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I spent a few years, uh, touring recording, uh, for, you know, for profit for a living, you know, I had day jobs and stuff, uh, worked at my local guitar store in Victoria by day selling guitars to, you know, fall short of paying the bills. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun. And, um, and, you know, one thing that's kind of neat it, in the context of, of, I guess, like global history, um, you know, some people might think I've blown this out of proportion, but I, I feel like I really did experience firsthand the, the sort of like the death rattle of the for-profit rock music industry. You know, I think that that second wave that I referred to that sort of rock industry 2.0 was like the last um, that, that we're going to see of, you know, sort of the almost famous type type stuff where you've got these bands who, who assemble, they write some music. Um, you know, they manage to scrape together some capital, go on the road and, and, you know, they, they usually don't break even, but they get to sort of live out this dream, um, see the crowd, share their music with the world and, uh, you know, and then come home underwhelmed with a whole bunch of emotional baggage. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, that, that's, that's sort of where I got to with my music career. And then, um, you know, I, I, I actually got into the business of music along the way, which sort of started me on this other trajectory that I guess, you know, through a complex sequence of events brought me here where I'm at, you know? Wow. It's fantastic. So, so I guess, well, I mean, my, one of my favorite guitar riffs is the sweet child of mine and oh, yeah. all that with guns and roses. You said that. So as you said, guns and roses, that's what's going through my head. Really? You said you play guitar. So that'd be pretty cool. To- cause, cause for me, it was uh November rain all of a sudden came into my head. So that just tells you we're from that, that uh, yeah. G and R era. Paradise- November, yeah. 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 I can't, I can't tell you how many times I, I watched the, the music video, but just, just yeah. the, the slashes solo. Right. Just right. That. <laughs> When I was a teenager, like I just, yeah, no, I did. that was good. That's that's the fun stuff, you know. I, of course, I was a great air guitarist, but never could actually pick anything up. But one thing that I that I mean, the band guys that I always talked to, and my kids were kind of so one of my kids was associated with the band. The band directors always said that people who learn music and can read music and really get into music are, are natural in mathematical and sciences. It doesn't. To me, I don't, it just doesn't make the bridge, but I find it interesting. Right. Have, has, do you think that that aided you in your run into, you know, an yeah. oil and gas really? Yeah, probably. Uh, it, 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 one kind of mysterious thing, one thing that sort of mystifies my, my family and friends is that I'm like weirdly good at math. And, um, you know, you wouldn't think that of it. Like, you know, I, you're looking at me now and I've got this, I've got this beard and, and, and everything, but you know, um, you, like you should have seen me when I was like 22 years old, it, just visually. It's like, okay, this is the last guy in the world. Who's, who's going to go. <laughs> finance, you know? um, so last guy I expect to play a November rain uh, to, to quote guns and roses, just an urchin living under the street. Like that's what you yeah. would have said if you saw me, but no, it, it, I, I do, I do get numbers and, um, and I like numbers. I, I think mathematically, you know, like I reason mathematically. And I, I think that probably has a lot to do with, with all of the music. 
my, my parents put me in this program when I was really little called Code Die. I don't know if that's just a Canadian thing or maybe it's like a... Haven't heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm not... I, I, anyway, it's it's like a... It's sort of like a music class for, for very small children, like even toddlers where, you know, they, they're just sort of taught how to make noise and uh, and sort of taught the basics of rhythm and melody and stuff like that. So, yeah, I my parents enrolled me in that when I was a kid. So maybe that sort of started me on this trajectory plus i mean you know it's probably cold up there right so you got to be inside a lot you're inside you play the guitar more right i mean that's yeah you gotta gotta worry more about the humidity than the cold i think i would say he's he's a coast he's a west coaster it's got a a much milder winter than say you know alberta edmonton or something i'll tell you that for free (laughs) (laughs) which is where which is where home is for now um so so you you live out the dream, right? Yeah. And then eventually, like you said, like almost famous, yeah, the dream to be the rock star for yeah. a lifetime yeah. dies. Yeah. Then what? Yeah. So so I like I said, I had day jobs, right? And and one of the day jobs that I had um, <laughs> was with this this uh, this Dutch guy. There's a big population of Dutch people in in Victoria because of the horticulture industry there, right? It's it's the it's the garden city. And so, um, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of Dutchmen trading flowers, ma- making money and, and a lot of people don't know. Growers? I'm sorry. <laughs> Dutchmen, uh, I'm thinking tulip growers. And of course, then you went yeah. and started trading flowers. Okay. Yeah, and they are yeah, doing correct. It. yeah correct. You, you, you can go out to some of the suburbs or like farmland uh, around greater Victoria and see, you know, just sprawling tulip fields. It's cool. Wow. And yeah. And, and so not a lot of people know this, but, um, there's quite a liquid market for horticulture. Um, so there's, there's actually this big, um, exchange that uh, I believe is still called the United Flower Growers. It's it's on the lower mainland, just uh, in in Greater Vancouver. And every day, you know, uh, semi trucks pull up, and all these horticulturalists trade their their product. And so one of the day jobs I had was uh, was driving a truck for for a you know a company that did that. And um, just watching, you know, I I got to go to the the auction uh, several times a week and just watch the market activity, which really. Give me a little bit of an adrenaline rush, you know, the probably the same sort of sense of um, of enthusiasm that that you might uh, when you sort of see a Wall Street trading floor for the first time, you know. Yeah. But in my, my sort of small, you know, coastal town world, that was pretty exciting, and so that got me thinking about stocks and and markets, and um, you know, this was right around the time that, yeah, Jeremy, like you said, you know, I sort of realize this is, you know, this is all there is. This is as far as I'm going to go with music. So what else do I want to do? And that made me want to go to business school and and learn about business, particularly finance, which made me want to try a new city. So, and and that part was arbitrary. I was just sort of like, this town is small. I want to see what else is out there. Um, sound different, yeah. There you go. And so so you I just... A dart and went to Calgary or? Pretty much, yeah, pretty much. Like I... Uh, um. <laughs> Now, now we're getting to the other thing. I, 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 I was, I was a little bit fascinated with um, uh, Western and, and ag culture, hmm. and you know, Calgary is. Um, it's got this dumb nickname. People call it Cowtown, which I, I always yeah. roll my eyes at. But um, you know, it is, it is sort of the the heart of like Canadian Western and, and ag culture, um, which is arguable, particularly if you've got people listening from Regina or, or Saskatoon. Um, but uh, yeah, so you know, I moved out here in uh, in 2010. Uh, I'd spent you know uh, maybe five years on the road uh, playing music, and um, was just really excited to learn something new, get into this you know big you know 
flashy world of business and, and see, you know, Calgary to me was a big city. I wanted to see a big city and, and I wanted to see tall buildings. I wanted to meet like big, important business people. And so, um, so, you know, my, my undergraduate degree was my sort of vehicle through that. And, um, yeah, I mean, majored, majored in finance. And then when I finished school, I just you know, got pulled into work by, by industry. And, you know, there's, there's more story to tell there. I like the the subtle background of this. Well, you know, my my first my first run was it uh, was rock and roll, and my fallback <laughs> is investment banking. You know, I, that's just that's just a great line. Maybe that's what we should tag this. <laughs> He's got a big brain, you know. So then, so then you went about getting your CFA, right? Which yeah. is which is no easy task. Yeah, I was hired by. Um, well, I, I tried a few. I tried a few sort of short term gigs um, right around the time that I was finishing up my degree. Um, you know, did some like work terms and, uh, and tried a few jobs and ended up at, at this, uh, this asset management firm here in Calgary that, that was managing about a billion at the time, a billion and a half um, across a portfolio of mutual funds and hedge funds. It was all, you know, public equities. And um, so, you know, that was, that was like right where I wanted to be. Right. Um, and yeah, they put me through the CFA program. They sort of taught me everything I know with Excel. Um, you know, it was a neat environment too. Right. Uh, you know, I, I sat sort of next to, um, I guess, our little trading floor, um, which was, you know, pretty, pretty calm and, and collected compared to the kind of stuff that you see in movies like Wolf of Wall Street. But, um, you know, it was a lot of fun getting, getting to work with traders and portfolio managers and, um, you know, just see the way they interact with, um, you know, their, you know, the advisors that, that, that deal their products to, to, you know, and, and, and investors and, just constantly talking about stocks and companies and earnings. And, you know, it was, uh, it was a rush for a guy in his, in his mid twenties, you know, living in this little sort of you know, downtown bachelor pad, walking to and from work. I, you know, felt like I won the lottery. It was so fun. Nah, I love that's, that. That's, that's gotta be great to have that, to be that excited about going to work. I mean, a lot of people don't get that ever. Yeah. I, I, I got that. It, I got that. Sorry. This is my podcast, Darren. I, I get to talk when I want to talk. <laughs> no, I, I get that. Like, you know, listening to you, it's a little bit, it's a little bit like me, right? So I'm a small town kid from 3000 miles away from where you're talking about. And there was always this allure of the big buildings, right? Just whatever is not country seems to feel like, like fancy and rich and extravagant. And like, I'm going to, I'm going to do that. Right. That's going to be me one day. So my early jobs too, like, and Tim, I'll give you this. You were the first person I worked for that gave me full blown work from home opportunity. And because I was so appreciative of that, I was like, I don't want to screw this up. Right. And then you so, quit. So I, I worked there for three years, Tim, you can't just do that. <laughs> but <laughs> I would make sure like, cause you know, the first time you start working from home, it's all this autonomy that you never had between school and then a dozen years of, of going into an office Right. And you, you gave me this new level of excitement with being at home. And I'm like, oh, okay, with, with great privilege comes great responsibility. And uh, realized, you know, you, you can't just go out for beers in the middle of the day. But nonetheless, well, you know, you made me just to give, I gave you that. Well, I gave you that. But I was not going to rent an office for, for you just to drive to. But Darren, since you don't, you haven't seen the house he was working out of at that time complete i never could have gotten anything done in that house it would have, it's a complete distraction he's got he's on the side of a mountain dirt road and a babbling brook down below him and a, ba a, a porch or a balcony that kind of overlooks it 
mountain lions coming down the hill every once in a while. Yeah. Yeah. Never would have been able to work there. I would have been standing outside the whole time. That tests the work ethic, doesn't it? Yeah. It was so tough. When and we then he moved. There. It really moved That was the most irritating thing ever. He moved. Oh. Like everything was so calm and so nice. The babbling brook, the the door open, right? With just the screen at night. You don't need AC. Right? You're good. And then getting put in the middle of the suburbs, like a subdivision, like what the fuck is going on here? Damn it. <laughs> Bring me back. I want to go back to the woods. So going back to woods. Uh, here we go. Nice transition. Thanks. Nice. Yeah. Well, some we'll, we'll score that one later. We, yeah, 5.4 maybe, Max. Yes. Yeah. Well, we'll judge the best one that you can fit in by the end I, of the podcast. Believe me, I could have fit one in in the beginning that I chose not to. We'll just leave that to the side for now. But I, I can probably guess this, it. Was, Dar- was Darcy next? Because that's because you yeah. really made a big impact at Darcy. And you, you and I are doing some work together right now. And yeah. a, a lot of it has to do with the fact that, that you've been a connector, right? You, you built up sort of the finance side. And then you branch into the oil and gas and, and energy tech innovation side. Talk a little bit about yeah. the the momentum because I know it was a really exciting time for you and, and for the organization and and to be able to offer up tech solutions to operators. Tell me about the Darcy experience. How'd you get in and and uh, well, yeah, give a like little about bit about it? what they do because it's a different footprint. Yeah. It's a different thing to what 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 Darcy does. Sure. So I'll actually start there. So so Darcy is uh, is. Uh, Darcy has a really elegant business model for for playing matchmaker between uh, energy innovators and energy operators. So they um, they have this they have this uh, program of, of forums where they um, effectively just present technology that's been scouted on the basis of feedback that they've collected from the operators in their network. So they they go to their operators and they say, "What are your pain points?" Now this is where I think Darcy gets really competitive because. Um, they can actually go toe to toe with pretty much any any operator in the business um, in regards to even the most technical operational challenges, right? Like they they've they've made a business of of being very good at you know understanding, digesting, um, you know those those technical pain points, and then going out and scouting really efficient solutions that sort of hit that nail right on the head, and then they you know they present those those findings those you know scouting and research findings through those forums that i mentioned so um so, so the company so for, hold on so so for like i always thought it tim a little bit of of like a industry centric gartner type offering yeah. right where where they sort of have a magic quadrant in mind and then sort of play matchmaker but it's the level of detail that they get into i think that separates yeah. what i think you know and i've been invited as a innovation vendor to be a presenter to the, the, in a forum. And so it is kind of interesting from that perspective of, Hey, you're being brought in because you, you scratch an itch for this group of people. We think you're going to be a good fit. So we just want you to present and, you know, wound up, we got some business out of it, which is, you know, what we wanted. And and at that level, they're not charging the innovator. That's right. They're not coming in and saying, Hey, you need to pay 10 grand to be part of this conference or whatever. Right. And there's models for that. This was very different. That was the part that's interesting. Now, the other part that is cool, and and that's where Darren was building up to, is, you know, Hussein went out and got a bunch of technical people, these advisors, to who knew their shit and brought them in to then go find the innovators and bring them together. That's what I think is so different about what he did is organized a lot of people. And I guess a lot of them are part-time or retired guys that, you know, 
you know, came out of Chevron 30 years or whatever, and really knew some, brought a bunch of different things. And anyway, it's a very interesting connection of, of people. Yeah. And then their business model is very different. They broke the game, man. Uh, when it comes to procurement, like how, how, you know, the service side interacts with the, with the EMP side of the business. Definitely. Yeah, they, broke, they broke that game. Um, and, and they did it, I think by sort of having the courage to, to look at, at the two sides of the market and say, you know what, what if we just don't charge these guys? What if, what if it's effectively a free service to the innovator side of the market? And that way the operators know that we have no monetary incentive to sell them anything. You know, we're, we're really just working for them, trying to high grade and filter through solutions that really do address the information that they've given us about what they need. Yeah, and, the, so, and I guess the premise initially, I'm sorry to jump in just because I was at the kind of the early ones, was, you know, small innovator, new startup, doesn't have access to the CIO of, well, I already said Chevron, of Chevron or right. of whoever else. That's right. And so, and you know, and the, the CIOs all say the same thing. You know, we never get a chance to see all this new stuff. And all right, well, whose fault is that? You've got a lot of of people being put up in front of you to prevent you from seeing it. So that, I think that's this position that Darcy carved out initially was, Hey, they want to see the new stuff, but they don't have time or the barriers are too high for them to see the new stuff. And, and they were able to kind of pull those together. And then the Chevrons of the world, I don't even know if Chevron's a client of, of Darcy or not pay to be part of this club to be able to see all this new stuff. All right. Yeah. I've oversimplified it some, but you know, anyway, so you were one of the advisors, I guess, in this process. Well, well, I ended up running Darcy Canada for a little while. So th this takes us back to when I was still sitting at a desk at a, at a, at an asset manager. Right. And so, you know, I, um, now I'm a CFA and, and I'd been there for a number of years and I was probably a little bit faster with Excel than I, <laughs> than <laughs> I had to be. Um, and so a guy who I'm going to give a shout out to, uh, by the name of Andrew McMurray, uh, who's, oh, I know who's him. Uh, yeah, he's a pretty well-known guy here in, in in Calgary. You know, Canadian oil and gas. He he worked with Step Energy Services, and um, and then uh, so you mentioned Hossein Raksari, uh, one of the one of the co-founders of Darcy. Him and his and his co-founder Jeremy Sweek. They they approached um, uh, Andrew um, and basically said, "Hey, do you, you know, do you want to set up a, a Canadian presence for us?" And you know, Andrew just you know he he's a really inspiring guy. By the way, if, if you ever meet him, you know he's. Uh, he, he just loves nerding out on technology. He's really outgoing and, and just one of those really inspirational people who you just love listening to. Um, and so uh, he and I were put together for a coffee meeting by a, a common friend of ours. And, um, you know, we, we talked a little bit and he said that he was looking for somebody and, you know, to make a long story short, he was basically like, well, why don't you try your hand at BD? Like, you know, I get it. Right. You if you stuck around and, and, and stayed in, in the industry that you're in, then, you know, maybe one day you'll be managing a little portfolio of your own. Um, but, you know, you could also get into this really cool energy technology. And uh, and, you know, you seem like a people person is another thing he told me. You know, why don't why don't you, you come hang out with me and I'll show you the ropes? Like, you know, it, it, it was my first business development gig. Mm. Um, but anyways, you know, I, I chatted about it with my wife and stuff and and. Yeah, I decided to, you know, just try something new. Um, seemed exciting. And, and furthermore, I'd always been pretty into um, oil and gas production from a, a technical perspective, just because it is so fascinating, you know. Um, 
one thing that I've always sort of said about this business is that it's it's an industry of excellence. You know, you if you hang around with oil and gas professionals, you encounter excellence. You know, technical excellence, engineering, geoscience, yep. excellence. You know, and it, actually, during my time at Darcy, I met this guy. He was he was a completions engineer, and um, and he was talking about his work and and sometimes you know how he just sort of sits back and realizes like the complexity that they're trying to overcome. Mm-hmm. And he's and he said this, which always stuck with me. He's like, you know, if I'm in a plane at cruising altitude and I look out the window, and I can see the ground. You know, I remind myself, like, you know, we're we're trying to hit a target area from that depth, you know, with with such precision, mm. and um, you know, and and the degree to which we care and and obsess over, you know, over uh, achieving the goals is, uh, you know, is tremendous, and um, and so on that basis, you know, I I, uh, I was really excited to to get into that culture of excellence, right? I I wanted to learn more about. Um, you know, the kind of people who, who came up with these novel and, and innovative concepts for making process, uh, for boosting process efficiency. And, um, of course, you know, being in Calgary, you get plenty of exposure yeah. to that. Just, you know, sitting down at the second cup on the, in the plus okay. 15s, you're going to get that exposure just by sitting there l- listening to people go by. Yeah, just living and breathing in the city. Yeah, you, I was already um, very aware of you know the industry and and um, it, more from I think like a capital market perspective. But um, you know it it was just it was really exciting to to be able to join the team and 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 you know be given this sort of like paid permission to to just nerd out over over technology and sort of put put you know just numbers and dollar signs on on hold for a minute. So. Um, so anyways, that, uh, that's how I got in. And then, um, you know, I think it was towards the end of 2018, uh, Andrew, uh, stepped away from Darcy and, um, you know, Jeremy Sweek, one of the co-founders, uh, down in Houston, you know, basically, basically said like, look, you know, we can either hire a replacement for Andrew or, you know, you do it. We, <laughs> you do it. We'll just bring you up. You know, I, I can do the job with you for like six months and, and, um, so I said, yeah, let's, let's do it. Yeah. And it was a steep growth curve, but, uh, but you know, that's, that's how, um, strategic consulting is right. You know, it, sometimes I feel fortunate to have ended up in a, in a job like that, just because, you know, one year in, in a, in a role like that is maybe five years in, in other roles out there. So, right. you know, I learned an awful lot. Yeah. By I the mean, way, we're going to have Jeremy on the podcast in really? what the summer, like, December. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's committed. We don't have a date yet, but we're close. He's great. Yeah. Very, uh, kind of dry tells it like it is. You know what I mean? I, I really like him very smart. Um, but, but yeah, so I actually met Andrew around that time. And I think what happened with him, which is something that's happened. I've seen with Darcy people is you're working with all these innovators and you fall in love with one and you take a job. With 100%. Them, right. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I've seen that's that. That's the before. curse. Right. Yeah, that's the curse. Didn't happen to me. Didn't happen to you. So, so you went out actually after Darcy, like around late what late twenty nineteen, early twenty twenty, and got back into the investment finance yeah. space, right? Yeah, it, it was mid twenty twenty, right in the middle of COVID. Um, I yeah, good time, perfect. Yeah, yeah great time just to to start an advisory firm, right? You know, you know, I um, especially with with the, the catalytic effect that that COVID had on this whole ESG phenomenon. You know, I, I just really had been developing a, a thesis around capital flow. You know, given my my uh, you know finance and capital market background, I was just you know looking at 
the energy landscape, uh, the energy tech landscape, the energy transition landscape, and and sort of honing this thesis about how capital needed to move in order for um, that transition to roll out, you know, responsibly, sustainably, economically. And I saw an opportunity when when COVID hit to um, you know to step back into the into the capital market and say, all right, guys, let me let me help direct traffic here. And uh, so you know, I, I set up an advisory firm with some uh, partners here in Canada. And it's so funny that you mentioned that um, uh, that sort of common common trap of of getting sucked into Seen you a know, bunch. So that's basically you know what what happened with us at, at that advisory firm. You know, um, we we all got sort of distracted um, working with really cool companies that that we met in the process of doing our our, our work. Um, but you know, there there is uh, there is a lot of there's a lot of natural curiosity in me that that sort of leads me down that more traditional like investment banking path, you know, like just just deals, deals, deals. You know, I, I want to see lots of companies and I want to, um, you know, I want to help close a lot of deals. And um, and so that's, uh, you know, we're, we're probably going to talk about BCP at some point in this yeah. conversation. But that's what brought me uh, brought me in with them and brought you to me. So, I, you know, I, I think at some point I do want Michael Toker to, to come on this podcast. He's very entertaining. Talk about a straight shooter. Um, that guy's that guy's hilarious. But but effectively, he's an investment banker here. Right. And th- there is a lot of technology that comes out of of Calgary. Right. In the energy tech world um, and having a resource there makes makes a lot of sense. But it's it's really interesting to see what what Michael and his team are able to do. Because they they operate almost at a different speed than the oil and gas industry does, yet that's how things seem to get done, right? So it's it's a very interesting uh, means of watching it. Like he seems like somebody that should be in New York, you know? Totally, totally, yeah. Or or in a movie about Wall Street, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> and he lives in Boulder, right? So I mean, it's yeah. you know, it's it's interesting. Everything's untraditional in, in this space. So. Um, you know, one of the things that I want to dive into a little bit, because you touched on ESG, and I feel like we should get yeah. there coming off of Karthik uh, being on last week, which was a good listen, Tim. I actually listened oh, to that right when it came out. Nice. It's very good. Because it was just an education and, um, you know, re- really, really smart. And, and I can even say this, and maybe it's because of $80 oil over the past two or three weeks, I'm seeing a lot more activity amongst operators looking for solutions. And one of those solution areas is ESG. I think it's really emerging very fast. And maybe these companies feel like their runways extended a little bit more now with oil and especially natural gas prices going up. What were you kind of seeing previously with ESG and, and what's your thought on it going forward? Since you obviously pay attention to the flow of capital, no energy tech and no operators, like where's this all going? How fast is it going? I kind of want your viewpoint on the ESG movement. Sure. So first of all, business journalists are, are trying to frame ESG as a, as a new asset class. Um, look, maybe one day, but uh, right now, no, I don't think it is. It's, it's a risk management framework and, and a, very, a very good uh, and uh, an elegant risk management framework. Um, look, the, the reality is uh, that businesses don't necessarily get rewarded or, or generate profit by doing the right thing. Um, but it is a fact that doing the wrong thing comes with risk, right? And and so um, ESG as a risk management framework reflects, you know, the um, the new reality where you know we have this 
world that's full of interconnected people who all have opinions and, and, you know, either approve or don't approve of each other's actions. And, you know, that's, that's led to this sort of neat little summary in, in three letters where, um, people care about, uh, how businesses affect, um, people socially, they care about how those businesses affect the environment yep. and they care about how those businesses govern themselves. And, um, and those are important considerations and, uh, and the risk of, of falling short of the public's expectations or stakeholder expectations on any of those three verticals needs to be measured and it needs to be mitigated. And so, um, on the mitigation side, you know, that's, that's sort of where we come in, right. As, as, um, as stewards of capital, um, there's a lot of investing activity or, you know, sometimes divesting activity. Um, that needs to be done in order to manage, say, environmental risk. And, um, and so, you know, to get to the, the other part of your question, the way I've seen it evolve um, is, you know, in, in sort of natu naturally, it, it's been in, in, in bite-sized pieces. Um, when I joined Darcy in 2018, um, again, you know, a big part of the model is asking operators, hey, what are your problems? And don't be shy. Like, let's get technical here. Casing, deformation, waxing, what is it? Um, so, Actually, those are two real examples of, of problems that came up in 2019. Um, and then it was like, uh, you know, we're paying too much for frac sand. You know, what, what, what can we do about that? So some more sort of ambitious kind of market-based questions. And then towards the end of 2019, um, from one of, one of the majors here in, in Calgary, who was one of my biggest clients, you know, I got this email with, uh, with just a whole bunch of questions. And, and this, these questions had come out of a, a C-suite meeting. And um, basically, they just wanted to um, completely eliminate the uh, the any risk that that yeah. methane emissions pose to to their business. You know, they they just had enough of the whole methane risk thing looming over them, and so you know, then it was time to go out and find you know leak detection uh, vendors, at leak detection innovators who could help them mitigate that risk. Um, so that was sort of one of the first warning shots over the bow where, where a Canadian, like a major Canadian EMP, um, said, yeah, we're going to put serious resources to this. Um, and it was probably the first time that I had actually seen the word emissions used in, in, you know, an explicit request for, for business. Um, and then, so that was, you know, end, end of 2019, um, at the same time, there were a ton of pressures coming from, from the, the commodity market. Right. Um, sure. I can't remember what what the the spread between WCS and, and WTI was at the time, but it was it was wide, um, and so th there were uh, there were a lot of balls in the air and and a lot of challenges to 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 suddenly understand and and calculate, you know, um, and then COVID hit and all of a sudden you know everyone was was sort of pointing the the, the finger at at the oil and gas industry for one reason or another, either you know the public was you know demonizing and saying, you know, th these, these companies are responsible for, for the climate crisis, but within the capital market, investors were also pointing the finger and saying, you've destroyed our capital, you know, and, mm -hmm. and that, that hurts, man. Like that's oh. a, it's a brutal yeah. sentence. So, yeah. um, so, you know, there was, there was talk of, you know, what was going to happen to these companies where, you know, um, for, for the entire time that I had uh, been tuned in to, to the oil and gas industry, you know, Wall Street loved initial production rates. IPs right. were king, and sure. uh, and then all of a sudden the industry was like, "All right, so are we going to be a self-liquidating cash flow model now?" Like, you know, um, 
having to just pivot like that and and respond in in real time to these really dramatic swings in in you know it, among stakeholders and, and markets yeah that is a it was a tumultuous time and then you know there was a, a ton of risk to to measure and and monitor and and understand so i think that sort of brings us to now where um where companies are starting to um uh they're starting to gain vision into you know what what position or what role they're going to play in the broader energy space you know in the next 5 10 20 30 years and you know what kind of investment decisions they're going to have to make in order to set themselves up to be you know um, profitable and, and sustainable through that time yeah one of the things that concerns me as a, a observer of some of this well first of all I, I am fascinated by when did it switch from hse to esg but which is kind of so did the H just go away or is that rolled up in there somewhere? But um wait, go ahead. You're gonna probably. It's yeah. <laughs> probably it's probably somewhere under the S is no, we don't care about health anymore. But yeah, yeah. You know, uh one of the things that concerns me, I worry about is companies that make a big bold statement. We're gonna be net zero by whatever date, yeah. or we're gonna yeah. reduce emissions by fifty percent by this date. And what we're seeing is some of them do that simply by divesting right. of mm-hmm. an asset that's using a lot of compression or, you know, maybe an oil sands asset that has to use a lot of heat. So they're going to divest of this. And so their ESG is satisfied, but all they really did was shift it over to somebody else and without actually making any impact on the climate at all. All they did was shift it to another operator that may not be as conscious as they are about oh, something. Yeah. So anyway, I don't know if you have comments on that, but that, that one of the things that really concerns me because we saw BP exit Alaska. And mm-hmm. one of the things they talked about was ESG or, or getting rid of emissions or getting one of, one of their biggest emissions generating uh, properties. And well, they sold it to, you know, another American company that's operating it for profit and, and doing quite well, but they became the number one emitter in Alaska as a result. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of, it's just interesting to me that shift that did we really accomplish anything by doing that? Well, yeah, that, that's, that's a really interesting way of sort of phrasing the question. Um, I think, uh, <laughs> I'll take interesting. Good. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think in some sense, you know, this is almost like a, like a really sort of large scale case study into game theory, like to, to use an economic term. Sure, right? um, sure. So, you know, typically when you think game theory, you think like, oh, you know, it's about market collusion and, and oligopolistic competition. But, um, you know, it, there are also instances where, um, let me put this a different way. If, if everyone in the world who, who has an opinion about climate change and, and the energy industry took, you know, 15 minutes and watched some like YouTube videos about game theory and what it really means, they might gain an understanding of how complicated it is to um, to pivot your business model when you're baked in to such a legacy industry or, mm-hmm. or market as as you know pet, uh, um, fossil fuels. Uh, so it's it's not an it's it's not a simple decision to to divest an asset like that for the reasons that you're highlighting. Um, I would argue that it's even harder, though, and I think this is kind of what you were getting at, Tim. I would argue that it's even harder to make the decision to invest in something that diversifies your portfolio. And, um, and I can tell you 
with, uh, with experience that, um, those decisions come with basically like a, like a, an endless stream of variables that you couldn't predict, you know, and each one of those costs money to, to address and, and, you know, to process. Um, it is a really risky decision when you're managing other people's money, you know, which, which is simply corporate managers are, um, to, you know, to deploy that money and, uh, and, you know, take, take bets on new business verticals. Um, and so that, that actually, uh, kind of brings me to another point though. Um, I want to talk about the investors for a sec, right? Okay. So, so the financial investors, but particularly, you know, the ones that we interact with at, at BCP, right? We, we focus on, you know, the lower mid PE market. So, you know, we're talking smaller private, um, private equity and, and infrastructure firms, as well as family offices, um, you know, who write the, you know, five to $20 million checks kind of thing. They're in a really tough spot right now. And I, and I feel like um, in the context of, of this topic, um, that isn't, it might not be discussed enough, you know, because it, when we get into these conversations with, um, you know, with uh, critics of, of the, the industry, um, you know, climate change activists, people like that, you know, there's this sort of, um, there's a sort of big picture kind of filtering that, that needs to be done in, in order to get to the bottom of the problem where people say like, why aren't we switching to renewable energy? It's like, well, who's we? And so then you identify all these different energy companies that are stuck in these markets with baked in frameworks and blah, blah, blah. And then they say, okay, so uh, whatever, one thing leads to another. And then you figure out that it comes down to the capital market, right? The flow of capital, like do, you know, do EMPs have adequate capital to invest and, and absorb the risk associated with investing in, you know, new types of assets like renewables? Um, so, you know, everyone wants a throat to choke and everyone wants a bad guy to point at and say like, okay, so it's this investor that's just holding up all the capital and, and now things can't get done. Let me tell you something about those investors. Okay. They are faced with an impossible task right now. Um, you know, we, we all like to imagine, you know, the, the greedy one percenter with the, you know, with the slick back hair, the Gord Gecko type, who's just like, no, this is yeah, my money. Yeah. I, I've earned it. I'm, I'm not going to, I'm, I don't care about, you know. Uh, your ESG agenda. I, I don't have to do good things with it. So I'm not going yeah, to show me the money. Yep. Yeah. Show me the money. Right. Um, dude, let's, let's step away from, from Hollywood ideas for a sec. The truth is that, um, you know, the, the people who work for or run those, uh, those institutional investment firms that I mentioned, they have a fiduciary responsibility to, to their investors, you know, the, and those investors are people like you and me, right. The, the, we're talking about our savings. Um, amassed, you know, in, in, in the, you know, the financial services or investment management industry. And, you know, they, um, on the one hand, you know, trust me, I, I, I speak to these, these um, investment managers every day. They, they understand the urgency and, and they understand the, the pressures and, and the momentum toward, um, you know, sustainable or, or ESG oriented investing. And, and they don't have any personal problems with it, you know, or, or vices. It, it more just boils down to the fact that, that first and foremost, they are obligated to invest their investors' money, their, their investors' capital in the most responsible way possible, which means, you know, getting the best bang for your buck when weighing, when weighing risk and return. And, um, and, you know, as long as we're talking about um, the importance of doing the right thing, uh, I think, you know, any sensible investor would just look at you and say, well, 
tie the two sides together for me. Show me how doing the right thing um, fulfills my responsibility to my investor and, and I'll do it, you know? Um, and so, you know, it's, uh, it's important that, you know, I guess people like us, you know, the, the three of us on this podcast do what we can to help, um, you know, guide, guide capital and, and innovation to, to the right places and make that market a reality so that investment managers and corporate managers can, you know, can make those decisions on the basis of, you know, like a, a real market where, where, you know, real money flows and real things get done. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, uh, <laughs> it makes a ton of sense and I'm very kind of ticked off that we got to it at the very end of this thing. Really? We could, we could go on another half hour just on this, I think. Yeah. We've been talking about a panel or something too. Just, I think that that might be, that might be a way we go in one of these future episodes, but, um, yeah, we're coming up on about 45 minutes. Um, Tim, did you have any other questions that you had burning for Mr. Woods? Well, I did want to, you know, so a little bit lighter side. So BCG, was that Boreas BC, Capital? BCP, yeah. BCP, Boreas I'm Capital. sorry, which is hard for me, the B and the P at the end. That, that gets me every time. But I'm know, also I'm, Funk Futures, right? I'm also Funk Futures. Yeah, well, I yeah. see that. You know, the thing that strikes me, and I always, there is no typical path so far in interviewing people for this podcast, there's no typical path into this industry. There's such a, we, we think that it's, you know, people who grew up in Houston just go right into the oil and gas business and that's how everything goes or you're, so it's fascinating to me to see how you get to this point and how you navigate to now, you know, this expertise in capital investing and ESG advising. It's just, it's a fascinating uh, study. Uh, really? Yeah, no, no question. Um, yeah, I mean, Darren, I, I, I really appreciate your, your views into this. I mean, I think that you have a pretty well-rounded background to, to come in to view this, sympathizing with the innovator, the investor, and the operator, right? I don't think everybody has the ability to see things that way. Usually it's just one of those windows, but I think that's a, a, a valuable means of looking into uh, ESG and, and how it affects everyone right? <laughs> in, in this whole ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Final uh, question I had for you, Tim, are we thinking socks in six or is it seven? Did, did you, you know, I think this is a seven gamer, quite honestly. And I think, and you know, I'm at, this is Astros talk now, but uh, with McCullers being out or possibly being out, I so just that. don't, yeah, you know, my, my attitudes changed. I'm not nearly as optimistic as I was like, you guys are better. Tampa was better too, though, than us. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, October's different, man. Hey, look, October's a different. Alabama movie. was better than AM. Oh, not so, on Saturday. You got to play that game. You have to play the games. Yeah. That's, that's all there is to it. I, I looked, I, I thought about jetting down there. I mean, come on, the game's Friday and Saturday in Houston. Go down real quick, but I'm not, I'll be down for Energy Tech Night instead. Uh, hopefully get to see you there. I think it's the 27th on a Wednesday. I'm personally excited to go to that and hopefully digital wildcatters at some point start bringing those events to Canada as well, because it seems like there's a ton of interest in them down here. Oh, it would play well in Canada. It really I would. So. I think so. It really would. Indeed. So got, of course, Calgary's got to let us in. We can't come up there right now. <laughs> like that's it, still it's, it's just locked down. That needs to change soon. I wish I could help you. <laughs> uh, we've talked about January. That. 
January minus 40. That's when we need to have it. Energy Tech Night yeah. when it's minus 40 in January in Calgary. No, thanks. Uh, Darren, where can people find you, man? What's the uh, best way, LinkedIn or any business profiles, things like that? Yeah, find me on LinkedIn. Um, you can you can always check out the Fun Futures website. I think I'm up on there. Um, or, you know, or just Google Boreas Capital Partners. I'm, I'm up on there as well. But yeah, you know, um, just sort of my, my closing remark. Uh, we're, we're almost kind of talking about it, joking around about the, the weather and stuff. But, you know, creating a, creating a nice fluid marketplace uh, between the U.S. and Canada for for energy innovation and energy capital to flow that's pretty integral that's pretty integral for the uh the energy transition to to roll out in a way that works for everybody here in north america so you know me being up here in canada and and working almost primarily actually yes working primarily with with stateside companies like <clears throat> excuse me fun futures you know that's uh that's a big part of it's a big part of what i'm trying to do the role i'm trying to play here right is is create more connectivity between our two countries. Uh, You do it well as a connector, man. You really do. Thanks so much, Mr. Woods. Thank you, Darren. uh, Have a good weekend. Thanks, guys. Take care.